Historian Elizabeth Nix provides some interesting details about a story we probably all know. She writes, the bald eagle's role as a national symbol is linked to its 1782 landing on the Great Seal of the United States. Shortly after the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, the Continental Congress gave Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams the job of designing an official seal for the new nation. However, the three founding fathers failed to come up with a design that won congressional approval, as did two later committees that were given the task. In mid-June 1782, the work of all three committees was handed over to Charles Thompson, the Secretary of Congress. Thompson chose what he thought were the best elements of the various designs and made the eagle, which had been introduced by artistically inclined Pennsylvania lawyer William Barton in a design submitted by the third committee, more prominent. Thompson also recommended that the small white eagle used in Barton's design be replaced with an American bald eagle, and Congress adopted this design on June 20, 1782. Contrary to legend, there's no evidence Ben Franklin protested to Congress about the choice of the bald eagle and lobbied for the turkey, although in a 1784 letter to his daughter, he did label the bald eagle a bird of bad moral character. Words of historian Elizabeth Nix from History.com. Let's stay in Philadelphia for a bit and see what we might uncover in the vast collections of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, one of the country's largest archives of historical documents, when we search on the phrase bald eagle. Now, here's another political reference. HSP, as it is known, has in its collection a hand-colored political cartoon printed during the War of 1812. The figure of Columbia, personifying the United States, lectures John Bull, a symbolic representation of Great Britain and Napoleon Bonaparte, on free trade and seamen's rights. Bonaparte stands on a small hill in the middle. Columbia, standing at the left, carries a pole topped by a liberty cap and has a shield bearing the stars and stripes of the United States and an American bald eagle behind her. At right, John Bull says he doesn't like Columbia's lesson and prefers to read his own book, which contains the message, Power Constitutes Right. That's a description of a political cartoon, an original print from 1813 in the holdings of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. What else comes up when we search for bald eagle in HSP's collections? Well, here's a volume of legends and folklore published in Reading in 1912, titled Tales of the Bald Eagle Mountains in Central Pennsylvania by Henry Wharton Shoemaker. So Bald Eagle as a place name. And here's something the HSP is very strong in, genealogy. The William Williams family of Bald Eagle Valley, a published volume tracing the Williams family from North Central Pennsylvania. Ooh, and here's an antique document from the Civil War. And now this is fascinating. It's a lithograph from 1861. And we'll soon hear about other lithographs in HSP's holdings that were made nearly 200 years later in Philadelphia by an artist who was said to have grown up 
in a former slave cabin in Georgia. That's the wonderful maze we enter when we get started at HSP. One thing leads to another. Well, this print, as we said, is a lithograph, a print that features the prophetically celebrated downfall of slavery. Again, a lithograph published in 1861. And although the downfall of slavery was hardly a foregone conclusion at the outset of the Civil War, the cartoon depicts a shackled African-American slave lying with arms outstretched at the center of the image, being rescued by Humanitas, Justice, Jesus, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and the Goddess of Liberty. These rescuers are shown riding on the back of a giant American bald eagle. To the right of the slave is King Cotton, a gigantic alligator-like monster wearing ermine robes and a ruffled collar, who throws up his claws in distress as the eagle grasps the edge of his cloak. Thunderbolts set fire to his throne, and his crown falls off his head. And speaking of birds and slavery, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania recently presented an online program for the public with Professor Bridget Fielder, and she's of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And here's the description. Paul Lawrence Dunbar knows why the caged bird sings, in part because of such connections between the enslavement of black people and the captivity of animals that were so prominent in 19th century culture. Because birds in particular were viewed as symbols of freedom, arguments that they should not be caged abounded in discourses on pet keeping. These arguments were often coupled with anti-slavery arguments, for example, in children's stories about people who adopt abolitionist views in tandem with deciding to free birds from cages. Fielder reads the racial resonance of birds in John James Audubon's narratives in this historical context of anti-slavery bird imagery, and also against another bird-slave analogy, the flying African stories of African-American oral tradition. Reading the bird-slave analogy in this context, we see human-animal relations that defy more commonly discussed racist human-animal tropes and instead illustrate black resistance to oppression. That from a description for an online talk in March presented by HSP. Just a few of the results skimming the surface of HSP's holdings. The Historical Society of Pennsylvania was founded in 1824, and it is not only one of the nation's largest archives of historical documents, with over 21 million manuscripts, books, and graphic images spanning centuries of American history. HSP is a leading center for documentation and study of ethnic communities and immigrant experiences in the 20th century, and one of the largest family history libraries in the country. And what wonderful news it was for the Historical Society of Pennsylvania to announce on October 27, 2020, that David R. Brigham, Ph.D., would become its new chief executive officer. He is a top scholar, a prominent educator, and a proven leader in the arts and humanities. He joined HSP after a tenure tenure as chief executive officer of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. 
As we've suggested, HSP is a crucial part of the network of institutions that care for the primary source materials that document the history of the United States and surrounding regions. Now, in its collection, the first two drafts of the United States Constitution, an original printer's proof of the Declaration of Independence, the earliest surviving American photograph, and the papers of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. And again, that's just the start. We had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Brigham about the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And in the first part of our conversation today, we learn about the questions HSP helped him explore in his own work over the years and the questions he's been led to ask about the role of important institutions like HSP in our lives, our society, and our times. We begin today by asking about the founding vision in 1824 of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. It's a great question, Erica, and it is a big question. I think, you know, in 1824, the founders were interested in the idea that our nation was almost 50 years old. And 1824 is also about the time that the Marquis de Lafayette made a return visit to the United States. France was, of course, a key ally in winning the American Revolution, defeating the British. And uh, Lafayette was a, a critical force in forging that alliance and, and you know, securing strong French support for our efforts. And so when Lafayette came back in 1823-24, it, it raised a historical awareness about the importance of the American Revolution. And it was a dying generation. You know, if you think about our own regard for the World War II generation and the Korean War generation, and now even the Vietnam War generation, we, we, we lose our leaders at an accelerated pace. And, and those who made sacrifice, great, great personal sacrifice o over the years. And so I think there was an awareness in that way that there was a dwindling number of people who were among the founders of our nation. So I think that was the spirit in which the society was founded, to pr protect and preserve that history. We were you know, approaching 150 years from the founding of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in the 1680s. So there was also sort of big anniversaries coming that, that the founders felt it would be important to commemorate those efforts and, and to preserve the important documents for future generations. When we look to, to where the society is today, we prize those documents and we're kind of amazed that over the nearly 200 years of the institution, we have gathered more than 21 million items into the society's collection. And it's just an astonishing number of items, but it also has incredible breadth into every aspect of American life. And, you know, we'll get into that further, I'm sure. I think what also has happened since the founding is that the sense of who belongs in American history has expanded greatly, thankfully so, so that our collections encompass the contributions of women and people of color and people from the LGBTQ community. And, and we have collections that relate to the immigrant experience. In fact, we have collections from the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre area that relate to the immigrant experience and, and particularly to the coal mining industry and 
you know, re- relief organizations that were created to support families who might have an injured or, or sick relative, perhaps as a, as a result of working in the coal mine. So the, the breadth and strength of the collections is just remarkable. And just about any question you could ask about American history, our collections would have some answer to. And the notion that the Historical Society is connected so to Philadelphia, but the starting of the country was so tied to the city of Philadelphia. So there is that sense that, yes, it might in certain senses be Philadelphia-centric, but in fact, as you've just suggested, the society encompasses the Commonwealth, certainly, and the American experience. So it serves us on all of those levels. I certainly hope so, Erica, and I believe it does. And And I'm excited in my tenure to really expand that reach and to make sure that we're serving the needs and the interests of the entire Commonwealth. So uh, we recently added three new counselors, which is what we call our board members. And one is from the Lehigh Valley. So my hope is that over time, we'll be able to add counselors from the Wilkes-Barre area, Scranton-Wilkes-Barre, and Harrisburg, and Erie, and Pittsburgh, and and really have a, a, a board of counselors who represent the geographic span of, of our Commonwealth. So that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to accomplishing. Well, you gave us a sense of the extensive nature of the collections, and I got lost on the website because I would follow a lead and just be fascinated by every corner, virtually speaking, that one could turn. But I thought maybe one good way to enter the collection and bring our listeners with us would be to talk about your own experience with the collection, and that personalizes it, and then we can open it up in many ways. But at least, instead of talking in generalities, we could have one person's experience and the results and the fruit of interacting with the society. Oh, I'd love to tell that story. I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania starting in 1986, and I took a graduate seminar called Uses of the Vernacular in American Art and Literature, and it was a wonderful course, and the core of it was a list of novels by well-recognized African-American writers, Zora Neale Hurston, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, for example, and my own interests lie in visual art and cultural history. So I raised my hand in one of those early sessions and asked the professor about African-American visual art. And he sent me to the library. And to my surprise, there was very little published literature. Jacob Lawrence has been in the news recently because there's an exhibition of his work that has turned up some new paintings that have long been missing. But One could find books about Jacob Lawrence in the 1980s and about Romare Bearden. And there were some sort of encyclopedic volumes about 100 or 150 years of African-American art. But there were very few published works about single artists. And so I found myself then going into the research libraries in Philadelphia to get a deeper, more firsthand knowledge. And One of the first places I went was the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and I found a fascinating collection of art made during the WPA. And, you know, when we think of the WPA, the first thing we might think of are roads and bridges and and things of that nature. But the WPA also employed 
artists in every discipline, theater, music, dance, and visual art. And Philadelphia had a fine art printmaking workshop on South Broad Street uh, over a bar colorfully named Benny the Bums. And they employed artists from 1937 to 1941. And, you know, there were a few dozen artists who worked in the workshop over those four years. And the one who really caught my eye was an artist named Doc Thrash, whom I had never heard of and whose work I, to my knowledge, had never seen. But it was really compelling work. And HSP has almost 30 prints that Doc Thrash made uh, in those four years in the WPA workshop. And as, as I learned more, I found other collections of his work in other repositories around the city. And, you know, I was digging through newspaper clippings and anything that I could get my hands on. And I discovered for myself, it was not truly a discovery because it was known to those who lived through it, that Doc Thrash was the inventor of a new printmaking process called the carborundum print. Carborundum is an abrasive powder that's used in lithography to grind the surface of the stone clean so that one can make a new image on it. And lithography was the predominant medium in the printmaking workshop, so it was readily available. And Thrash tried it on a copper plate, which would be used for etchings, uh, which was one of his favorite mediums. And so in doing that, he created an evenly surfaced textured plate that he could then use uh, a burnisher to smooth out areas and create the lights that would print light and dark. So the, the place that had been roughed up on the plate by carborundum would print a velvety black, and then he could smooth out areas to create tones and draw into the surface in that way. And that process was refined in collaboration with two artists named Michael Gallagher and Hubert Mezebov, and all of their prints are preserved in the collection of HSP. So it opened up this whole world for me of, you know, mid-century artists and, and particularly a group of African-American artists whom I had not previously known. And Doc Thrash died in 1965, but several other of the artists uh, were still living in the mid-1980s when I did that research. And it led me to meet them, to interview them, to transcribe those interviews, and then put those into the public record. So that, that first project really just took me into a collection that, that I had no idea existed, introduced me to artists who were brand new to me, and even taught me about innovations in the art world that, that were new to me. And it, it also showed me that the WPA was one of the first times in American history where there was public support, public funding for African-American artists. And it was the first time that art projects of that nature were integrated so that black and white artists were working side by side. So that, that was my first trip in 1986 to HSP. And, and I've continued to, to develop projects out of that research, a number of exhibitions, publications, and lectures right up until 2018. That, that research continues to be fruitful for me. It sounds like when I look at the website and the way you're speaking, that the material and the people who are lovingly caring for those materials are working to get the researchers like you together with the materials so this remarkable outpouring can happen. Because what good is it if they're in boxes or files if someone like you isn't exploring and asking those questions? 
Well, I, th- I think that's right, Erica. You know, the, the staff is tremendously helpful and, you know, knowledgeable about the collections and about, about research methods to find collections like this. And, you know, my second encounter with HSP bears this out. In the summer of 1988, I had just completed my second year at Penn as a graduate student, and I found a job working at Independence National Historic Park cataloging portraits in their collection. There, there are something like 150 portraits at Independence Park. And my job was to spend the summer really cataloging who made them, who they represent, uh, how they came into the collection, all those kinds of things. And that research brought me to HSP. And, and the artist who was represented by the most works is Charles Wilson Peale, who painted George Washington from life five separate times. And painted, you know, just about anyone you can think of from that generation. His life dates were 1741 to 1827. And in 1784, Peel created a museum of art and science that was really the first museum of its kind in the United States. It aspired, or Peel aspired, to collect one of everything of human and natural production, uh, which is a very ambitious undertaking. And and his, his goal also was that it would become an encyclopedic institution. He, he referred to it as a kind of national university that would serve, again, in his words, the learned and the unwise. So the point was that in a republic, we cannot create things that are just for the wealthy and the privileged, but we, we should create things that, that establish opportunities for everyone to learn and advance themselves. And in doing so, we will advance the national interest. So it was a museum that had a collecting mission, but also a social mission. And so that topic was so engaging to me, it became the subject of my doctoral dissertation. And I really wanted to test whether Peel was successful in securing and engaging a, a broad audience. And, and how does one go about that with 200 years distance between the institution and, and where we are today? And remarkably, HSP had a collection that allowed me to answer that. There there were three key aspects to HSP's collection related to Peel and his museum. The first was a book that Peel started keeping in 1794 to record the members, those those who paid uh, a dollar so that they could have annual admission, you know, free admission to the museum throughout the year. Regular admission was 25 cents, so a dollar meant that for the price of four admissions, one could come in any time for an entire year. And the book starts, you know, with those members who were most highly recognized and and in the greatest positions of authority. So the first name is George Washington. The second name is John Adams. And about four names down is James Monroe. So it's a pretty astonishing first page of a membership register. But as we get into the book, we find tailors and we find tradesmen and craftsmen and we find uh, lawyers and doctors and clergymen. So we, we have people of all walks of life. There are some women who were recorded. And of course, that left me with the question of, you know, was this an institution that, that only welcomed men? Well, the next document 
that I found that, that, again, was essential to answering these questions was a book of accessions, things that had been donated to the museum between about 1804 and uh, the 1840s. Some, some years after Peel's death, the museum continued to operate under the management of his sons. And there we find an even broader representation. Peel would take out advertisements in the Philadelphia newspapers. These were four-page single-sheet newspapers that would then be put on the ships that were going up and down the eastern seaboard, and they would be read in the coffee houses in Annapolis and Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and Charleston and, you know, moving north to New York and Newport and Boston and so forth. And he would ask people to donate specimens of, you know, bird and plant life and Native American artifacts and objects of historical significance and things that could be useful to make other things, natural resources, in other words. So in doing that, he really engaged a broad public in helping to build the museum. And then the third collection at HSP that that was essential to my work was a collection of silhouette portraits. You're probably familiar with these. Many of us had them drawn of us when we were children. But in 1802, Peel purchased a machine called a physiognotrace that allowed the operator to trace the outline, the contours of the face, using a metal ball. And then the the device would transfer that outline onto a sheet of paper that had been folded into fours, into quarters. And then a technician could cut those out and create four identical portraits, much like our, you know, school wallet-sized photographs are made today for, for our school children. And these, these portraits were exchanged among friends and family in Philadelphia for decades. The, the machine arrived again in 1802, and the concession continued at least into the 1830s. And interestingly, the artist who was put in charge of this was a man named Moses Williams, who was born a slave in the Peel household. And when Peel acquired the machine, he manumitted Moses Williams and gave him the concession as a way to earn his living. And he continued to work in the Peel Museum, we think, until about 1833. So it's a remarkable story. And again, thousands and thousands of these silhouettes survive. And HSP has dozens, if not you know, a hundred or more of these. And some of them are pasted into albums recording the extended families of of the sitters. So they, they clearly found an audience. And in Philadelphia, Quakers tended to shy away from things that, that suggested vanity or or were overly luxurious. So the plain aesthetic of the silhouette also suited those needs. So it's it's very interesting how all these sort of cultural themes come together in Peel's Museum, you know, the distribution of knowledge, education, opening up of opportunity to a broader public, but also engaging the public in helping to build our cultural institutions. So even 200 years later, I think Peel has a lot to tell us about how a cultural institution should function within society and certainly how we think about our nonprofit institutions. David R. Brigham, 
President and Chief Executive Officer of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, speaking with us in the first of a two-part conversation about HSP, its developing vision, and its remarkable collections. Dr. Brigham encourages us to visit the website at hsp.org to get a feel for the collections, the educational opportunities, resources for students and teachers, the great range of genealogical materials and assistance. For example, there's an upcoming eight-week online Zoom course about genealogy and genealogical research that will start April 21st and run to June 9th so that you can really get a handle on doing the work you might have been wanting to do on your family tree. And again, that website, hsp.org. Tomorrow on Art Scene, we'll plunge even deeper into HSP's collections and learn more. That's Dr. David R. Brigham, President and CEO of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, speaking with us about the institution, its history, its vision, its developing vision, with Dr. Brigham taking the reins on November 30th, 2020, as CEO and President. HSP.org, HSP.org.